Welcome to Making Conversation, a podcast where we celebrate making in all its forms. From amazing stories of inspiring makers and people to behind the scene peaks of Building Bright Collective, our monthly membership for all things craft, and the Making app, the first social marketplace for makers. We believe that the simple act of making can transform your life and in turn, change our world. This is why making exists. I'm your host, Ashley Yowsling, and today I'm talking with artist, maker, crafter, and designer, Eliza Mara. That intro will make a little more sense once you dive into this episode, but I think it's important to mention that since the beginning, I've always approached each episode as a conversation between myself and the guest. Because of this, they can often be quite intimate and nuanced. My conversation with Eliza is no exception. We cover a lot of ground, and it may resonate with some and not others, all of which is totally okay. I'm grateful to Eliza for her transparency and for sharing her authentic story as she's still actively navigating her creative journey. I hope we can all be inspired by her courage and bold dreams. And I hope you enjoy listening in on our conversation. You can connect with Eliza on the Making app, at Eliza Mara, and on Instagram, at Eliza Mara Studio. And with that, here's Eliza. I have an aunt. I always kind of remember her babysitting me, Um, but also she was the very much creative in our family and was always pulling out like tips and tricks out of a hat of how to do anything and everything, but in the coolest way possible. Um, And I just remember growing up and seeing her just do it for, you know, gifts and for celebrations and just kind of um, spending time with her was always interesting seeing what she'll be able to do. I somehow became that kid that always had threads and kits and needles and everything. Um, I remember getting for Christmases like really early on, I believe even like it might have been even first grade or even earlier uh, I remember getting um, yarn and needles for uh, knitting and crochet. I I thought it was so cool. And that always kind of developed over the years. Now I get more yarn and more needles and more stuff. And, um, and I specifically remember when um, I think it, it might have been like kindergarten and um, early years of school. Uh, we had these at like kids stores, um, like craft kits, but it was like everything starting from like scrapbooking and then moving on to like cross stitching and whatever. And I remember always kind of looking forward to like my next birthday or back home here, we have uh, name days in Latvia as well, which is kind of your second birthday. So you get gifts for that as well. So I was kind of looking for um, seeing that kind of yellow and green colored box, meaning that like, oh, it's from them and kind of be like, oh, that's that's something cool. They know me so well. Um, and funny enough, my aunt, she, she was making stuff for um, gifts. And for I remember like one Christmas, she was knitting at the tiniest sweater for my dad because my dad was asking for a sweater and she's like, yeah, well, I'm knitting one. And it was like with the tiniest needles just to be able to say that I knitted you a a sweater for Christmas, which I think is hilarious. And also it's a superpower to knit something so small anyways. So I guess in that sense, I just love the idea that like you can make a sweater (laughs) and it was amazing. And the same went with um, 
my grandma, I used to spend a lot of time with my grandma, my mom's mom, and she always had like a big box that was for threads, but also there was a lot of buttons in there. And looking back now, I see it was very much sensory play when I was little, but I just remembered that every single time when I was spending time at grandma's, I was looking forward just to like revisit that box and kind of play around and see what is my favorite button. And then the same later on went with uh, her sewing machine. It was the most basic um, at home sewing machine that you can own. And it was like really old and there was always something out of service. But I was, I remember every single time trying to get my grandma to set it up for me so I can just sit around and try to sew. Um, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And I remember one time I asked my grandma, I'd be like, hey, can we just make a tote bag? And I was like, I don't know, seven. And just like, well, no, we need a pattern. And like, I don't have time now to, you know, draw out a pattern and like figure it all out. And I was like, well, no, let's just make it. <laughs> <laughs> kind of being so like I don't know oblivious and just kind of for the sake of doing it and being busy with something and later on in um, middle school when we had home economics class and we had to have like this very typical very Soviet slash post-Soviet um, program for home economics where we still had to knit a pair of socks or mittens and we had to do white work embroidery which is very intensive for middle school and I was extremely excited for all that and I was always looking forward um to the next thing we're gonna be doing but then also I was that kid that was always sitting there on time so excited it didn't mean that I was doing good <laughs> at all and um I, I remember just being so annoyed with that there would be some people who are doing it for the first time and they do it so well and it's so pretty and even worse if, you know, they would have their moms knitted for them or, you know, the heel of a sock and I'm trying to figure it myself. And I remember I knitted socks, I think, four times. And the last ones that I handed in, they were like the tiniest baby socks because I just didn't have any patience for that at all. Just need to hand it in and it was absolutely fine. But yeah, that's that's definitely my place. Where did you see making and creativity guide you on through to high school or college? And then I won't give it away, but, uh, you know, your later schooling and that kind of thing. In middle school, I had home economics where we're like looking at all things related to crafting and making and kind of in the most domestic sense as possible. But then for high school, I went for a... Um, professional high school which is uh where you go it's a school high school art school um and profession that you graduate with and um my department was um textiles but we had two different departments so we were the ones doing more with sewing and with crafts so that's when I kind of was like oh that's great you know this is a space I'm comfortable in and I can you know, take my high school expected misery away with just doing stuff that I would like to do in the first place. So that really kind of formed, um, I don't even know how to say it, kind of that it's cool and it's normal and, you know, we still do it. I kind of picked up embroidery again 
just because, again, I was home alone a lot and I remember that I enjoyed doing it. I was trying to run my, my own business, which is actually now looking back really hilarious. Um, because literally all the pocket money I would have, I would either spend it on makeup or on um, beads or supplies. And it's it's really funny because I do have the membership at our biggest kind of craft store since I was like in fifth grade. And I believe I was like 11 at a time and now I'm 24. So, I mean, I'm a very loyal client. So I'm I'm expecting my cut really soon. I remember I was making jewelry and just kind of with the simplest things and trying to sell it. And I was so upset that no one would be buying it for me. And when I was making something, I needed a challenge and like a new challenge to overcome. So I was trying to find a shape and a format for embroidery to be useful. So it could not be domestic or like very in the background. Um, and then that time I was very kind of running into the um, issues of, or I guess lack of knowledge on how to um, finish embroidery and finish um, jewelry in that sense that's embroidered um, because I was developing more the finishing aspect rather than what's on the piece of jewelry in the first place. Um, and that was kind of uh, a really big learning experience. And also since then, I'm not really doing jewelry at all. <laughs> so um, it, it was a good learning curve. And I kind of realized I like big and loud and visible embroidered jewelry. And people back home here don't really go for that often. And um, yeah, it, it definitely was an experience in that sense. And um yeah, so in high school, I was going for my textiles. And then for some reason, I figured out that my future is in fashion, which is, I don't know. I mean, this is just going to be a great example that my ego has been strong since forever. I figured out that if I get my bachelor's in fashion history, which to be fair, I was somehow interested in, but I couldn't say it's, you know, uh, as big of a deal as embroidery is. And I thought that if I get a bachelor's in fashion history and then get a master's in fashion critique, I could be, you know, one day maybe taking over Vogue, <laughs> which is a really bold statement. But I mean, I felt that way and it's been years since then. Um, and that didn't happen. Um, it was um, my last year of high school while I had to uh, apply for uh, university and I was applying for London and for Central St. Martins and somehow I got through like the first I believe two rounds uh, I had to submit my essay and everything and um, then I got a rejection back that kind of freaked me out but I remember when I was waiting for that rejection because I knew it would be coming I, I just didn't believe that I would make it through because you know it's it's a really big fashion school I remember just like looking on um Instagram, I saw someone posted that they are doing embroidery for their degree. And I was like, oh my God, that's so cool. Why Why did I do this? And I apply only to one school because I could have applied for three at a time. And for some reason I was like, no, you know, I'm, I'm just gonna shoot for the one. And if I don't make it, I don't make it, which is very stupid. And I got that rejection letter and I was like, oh great. I can go for embroidery now, <laughs> which is like kind of putting embroidery in the background at all times. In the UK, when you apply for uh, schools, you apply by mid-January 
And then in March, you get letters back if you have an interview or if you have a spot. And that's when I, you know, got the letter that um, I'm rejected from St. Martin's. And then at that point, I applied for still the same year to start um, my program at Royal School Needlework. Just kind of fully kind of shooting in the dark and being, I'm not going to make it, it's fine. But I'd rather shoot it than not shoot it. And I happened uh, to get in, which apparently is a really hard time to get in because at that point they already have, uh, you know, a whole class. And also there's like an extra layer to that of just some uh, uh, Eastern European magic. So my best friend's mom, she is a psychic. (laughs) And I remember meeting her for the first time, but honestly, just going visit her as my best friend's mom just around that time before my rejection letter came in and we were talking and she was like you know giving me her you know pointers as she feels on uh you know if i need a degree and where should i be going and what's in my future whatever and i remember her saying that um you don't need this degree being the one that i applied for it for fashion history and i was like oh okay um, interesting. And she said, well, that's only for your ego, like an ego boost. And I was like, fair enough. I mean, <laughs> that, that's, you know, true. Um, and she's like, and she's saying to me, she's like, you know, definitely embroidery is your field to go in and you're going to make a great living for yourself and you're going to be a big deal, which obviously I love to hear. Um, and she just went on being like, yeah, you know, I see you in a place like we don't have back here at all. I'm like, okay. She's, she says, um, you know, it's, I see like big stained glass windows. I'm like, okay, maybe, you know, when I'm old, maybe I'm going to live in Barcelona and like, there's, I don't know, for some reason I thought Barcelona has stained windows. I don't know. (laughs) And and she goes on and on. I'm like, yeah, okay. Well, not, not thinking too much of it. So literally two days later after, after seeing her, uh, I'm in the hospital with pneumonia because I overworked myself so hard and was fully burnt out before even finishing high school. And I get that rejection letter when I'm in the hospital and I call my mom and I say, you know, I've been rejected, but I applied for the embroidery school. She's like, oh my God. I'm like, what? She says, that's where your friend's mom saw you in. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, no, 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 listen to me. I'm like, okay. She's, she says, you know what? It's like, look at that school. It has huge stained glass windows. Like it's, it's meant to be, it's happening. You're getting in I'm like, okay. You know, I like that as well because that gives me confirmation that I, I'm getting into the school I want to get in. Oh yeah. And so I got my phone interview and then I got a confirmation that I got into Royal School of New York. And I sent the photos of the, well, the thing is the um, Royal School of Needlework is in a huge palace in London. It's in Hampton Court Palace and it's a huge um, place that's right um, near like um, edge of London. And I sent pictures being like, oh my God, this is insane. This is like something from Harry Potter. And my friend forwards that photo to her mom and her mom like points which window she saw me sitting in. I was like, okay, well, fair enough. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) So yeah, that's the story of like how I got into Royal School of Needlework for my um, degree. And also I found about that school on YouTube. Uh, It was, I was just like Googling embroidery schools, whatever. And I just Googled it for the sake of like, let me just dream about it. 
and I remember just like, you know, watching the video of like slow shots of the palace and like the extreme um, glamour and luxury that's in the palace and being like, oh, that's great. But, you know, obviously tuition in everywhere outside Europe is extremely expensive and like, I'm not going to make it. And But that's nice to dream about. And uh, yeah, and it just happened in like fast forward mode and literally I, I didn't believe I always say that the Royal School of Needlework was a dream that I never dared to dream until my first day there. <laughs> so, yeah, that's kind of um, how it all happened. I'm curious. What is your sun sign? Uh, I'm an Aries. Okay, I'm an Aries too. Uh, great. I can I can feel it. <laughs> when is your birthday? 6th of April. Mine's the 10th. Uh, great. Okay, we're very close. I love it. Uh, do you know what your rising sign is? I'm a Scorpio, which makes things so much worse. <laughs> that is intense. I found it out in like only this summer. But then I was thinking that like, I feel I have a lot of things given to me a lot at first. And then I just have to like kind of work for them kind of <laughs> afterwards. And then I was kind of thinking that, but I, there's no way that I have such a hard like character overall just with being in Aries and then I found that out and I was like oh my god this makes so much sense and it's kind of scary I mean I've always seen Aries as very you're a warrior ramming through what other people think aren't possible I have a lot of Scorpio in my chart as well my rising sign is Aquarius which is like humanitarian and making make sense for me because warrior slash better the earth when you were talking about the ego I love that you can recognize that but I also think it's a superpower that we kind of feel like we're invincible in a way. Yeah. Why wouldn't we take these risks? I mean, there's a shadow side, right? There's a moment where mm -hmm. you're like, oh, fuck, what did I get myself into? Because we leap first, right? <laughs> yes. And then we look after, we're like, oh, what did I do? <laughs> yeah. It's funny that you say it because I feel that's like my biggest revelation. I'm kind of having time to reflect on stuff and experiences that I've had and I'm kind of looking back like yeah I definitely have the ego for anything and everything but now I'm just kind of in the best Aries fashion as possible I'm like I love myself <laughs> I think it's so great that like when you're so passionate and you're so confident and just you go and do it and like honestly Always my mom has made fun of me being like, there's never been, you know, a situation where I could say, you know, I have certain expectations for you because you would always just turn around and leave. <laughs> just like not listening to that. And I'm like, sometimes looking back, like, that's actually great that I could kind of um, have my tunnel vision and just do whatever I want because I feel looking back at the crazy late high school, early uni days, it was very necessary. And I, I look at it as being as a superpower that like I could block out all the concerns or anything and just focus on one thing at a time. And now when I'm out of school, I think I've lost my touch and I care for anything and everything, which I shouldn't do. <laughs> and, and, and kind of going back to what you're saying, like it has a shadow side, like, yeah, that's... Um, it's very much uh, the case for me as well, where like I can always, I, I will never promise things that I'm not able to do. 
I say that, you know, I can participate and deliver on this end and do this and that. But then when I have to start doing it, I'm like, oh my God, like, where did that confidence come from? And like having a full on imposter syndrome being like, no, I'm not, you know, particularly capable of that. But then after that, like I have a pattern being like, no, 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 it's great. I am a professional. I can handle this. And then at the end of the end of the like, you know, a phase or a project, I look back and like, I don't know how I got myself into that. <laughs> We believe that the simple act of making can transform your life and in turn change our world. This is why making exists. It all starts with inspiration, where you're inspired by people, by places, by experiences, a beautiful photo, a soft wool, a kind heart. These are the things that motivate us to make. Making is here to disrupt systems, systems of oppression, systems that only benefit certain groups of people and systems that extract. We are here to challenge the narrative of profit over people. We believe a company can be founded for the purpose of good and change the world for better, while also creating opportunity at scale. Makers are tired of the monoliths, the few companies that comprise our only choices of how we connect, how we transact, and how we learn. Makers are ready for a better alternative, and that is what we are building. Becoming a Bright Collective member helps us accomplish this. Visit makingzine.com to learn more. We have a special 10% discount on Bright Collective yearly memberships for podcast listeners. Use discount code MAKINGCONVO10 during checkout. I'm a very critical person and I'm trying to understand, is it my sign? Is it my family? Is it like... That, that I'm an only child, I'm just like trying to like give myself a diagnose here. I guess that could be the thing that I struggle with the most. I can give a good critique to someone else and as in good being actually constructive and trying to be very helpful, but it also kind of gets me in trouble with myself because if I can be constructive to someone else, that does not mean I'm constructive to myself. I have extremely high standards for anything and everything and especially with embroidery as it is um technically my therapist told me that embroidery and the act of making is at a, such a high level where you know for other people it would be with like substance abuse <laughs> so on one hand I'm lucky but on the other hand like it consumes all my life and that's where I kind of put all my self-worth in and that's when it kind of gets complicated because I can jump into the mode of criticizing myself in literally a split second and I can give you a list of things that should be done better and you know why something is a piece of shit even though on the other hand with my ego I think it's the best thing that anyone ever has seen or will see so it's extremely complicated relationship with myself and my work at times where it's very, um, I just have to remember that I can navigate that, mm -hmm. which is really hard sometimes. You know, there's a few parts of that that I think are really interesting. And I would venture to guess that there's many people that feel this way. We are our biggest critics. And that's kind of a generalist term. I think I, I mean, I hear that a lot. And I think there's 
trauma speaks to that a lot too. Like Mm -hmm. in the more recent years, loving myself has been the biggest lesson. I think very highly of myself in a loving way, but I also, I I can feel so horribly or speak in my mind so horribly to myself, things I would never say to anyone else. And how I present to other people is really how I need to be presenting to myself. Incredibly high standards for sure. But who are those standards first posed on? Ourselves, right? So Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think feeling for our humanity in some ways, being a very strong-headed, self-empowering individual. You said something earlier where like things are given to you and then like then the hard work comes. And I've definitely experienced that a lot in life. Not fortune. Mm-hmm. Things will just happen. It's like it's like magic, right? It is. I, I've always is. kind of I've always thought that like or growing up, I was thinking that like you always have to work hard for things in your life. And everything that you will have is only hard work. But then in high school, I started realizing that like maybe hard work is 90% and 10% is just magic. It just happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a term like co-creating with the universe. I think we tend to be doers, right? I can do to the end of time. Mm-hmm. There's a problem with that often. Like it takes, like I leave no room for the co-creation from the universe. I mean, I've gotten better at letting other people co-create with me, but beyond that and just being in a state of being. So when you talk about the substance abuse aspect of it, what I think is interesting, and this is not to demean or make light of people who are really struggling or have struggled with substance abuse, but I have been reading the book by Gabor Mate, The Myth of Normal. It's his new book. And he had a recent podcast and episode, and it was all about trauma and through listening to that and then another podcast, I realized that substance abuse, addiction, you know, there's an amazing uh, TED talk by Johan Hari who talks about that the opposite of dic- addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And mm-hmm. where I resonate with that is this word belonging, connection, and that some people fill that void or deal with their trauma or deal with how they are and how they see themselves in the world with substances. Some people use work. Some people use doing. Some people Mm -hmm. use productivity and perfectionism. And that is, I mean, that's me. I'm a person who I think while I talk, so especially going on like walks and everything, and I'll do the most of my thinking and while talking and everything. And it's funny because my husband is not as talkative as I am. Um, but I remember this week saying something to him that, um, yeah, it's so weird that, you know, something along the lines that, yeah, I find a lot of value um, in my work and uh, as in my self-worth and uh, everything and kind of continuing on that. And he was like, and this is only now when you realize. <laughs> and and it's it's really I think it's a really hard relationship to have with work. But to be fair, I've you know grown up with um, living with my mom since my parents separated. My mom has been extremely hardworking, so it's kind of the one way that I've seen it work and be done and kind of you know rebuilding a life. So that's how I've learned how to curate your own life. 
but then also it's kind of is I definitely could say that it's like my main trait but after finishing um my degree I kind of have come to terms with how many lines have been crossed in a way but I'm okay with those lines being crossed because I was living alone as in well with my roommate but I was only taking care of myself um, and it was a huge deal to adapt with living my husband. When he, I remember the first time when he said to me that, hey, can you like not do something? And like, can you like not stitch and not knit? And can we just watch a movie? And I thought it was such a silly question. Being like, what do you mean? I always do something when I'm watching something. I, I don't remember the last time I've, you know, just focused on doing like one thing at a time, which sounds so miserable, but it's kind of, you know, we condition ourselves that like being productive at all times is something of a value, which then uh, sometimes it just bites you back 10 times more. Yeah. I think it's also, I don't know how this translates, you know, in Europe, but capitalism, it feeds that beast, you know, this idea that we must always be productive. And the thing is, is I like it, you know, like, like it makes me feel good. Um, but it's interesting. It, it's, it's weird to be, you know, nearing 40 and be thinking about this now, even though I see over the last 15 years of my career that I have grown so much. I've become so much more cognizant. I mean, obviously having three kids, my life is radically different now as a mom than it was before in terms of, you know, working and being present with my kids. But I think that's out of necessity. And now I'm diving into, okay, but what is best for me? Like how can I create space for what could be as opposed to what's instinctual because what's instinctual is to be productive and to work and always have my hands busy i mean david my husband calls it like stress making or working mm -hmm. he was gone last night i was home with the three kids and he came home and i had the washing machine like fully dismantled he's like you just need to sit and like with the, i'm like i can't like i gotta be doing something and i realize that's what i'm working through now is like what is instinctual like revisiting that and dismantling that so that it leaves room for other possibility see the thing is like when you say um instinctual and like what is for me like my first immediate thought was just having the freedom to do whatever i want whenever i want being whatever you know either stitching knitting renovating anything that I can do on my own where I'm in control that would be for me I don't need anything else and see that's the thing like I've you know been alone for a long time as an only child and didn't particularly had too many friends um growing up and I was fine like my like me time or time away from socializing was always creating something and now kind of realizing that that's not how it's affecting others is shaking <laughs> it, it, it really shakes like my foundation so where this has led me to now is 
how can I transform the act of making from something that I'm required to or feel compelled to do from like a productivity standpoint, thinking about this word ritual, because it's not like we're going to stop making, right? This is something that brings joy and healing and is so much fun to do. And so that's where my brain is at right now is like, okay, creating intention around what I'm doing. It, it is a little difficult considering my job is making like literally and figuratively being able to compartmentalize those a little bit more and create rituals in my day, in my week around the act of making that are more sacred. Carrie and I started a dying process, which I've done a lot over the years, but not really with this intention of like, okay, this is set aside time not to have expectations of results and outcomes, but just the act of doing this thing and accepting what it is that comes of it, how it'll turn out. And so that's something that I am trying to be more cognizant of and also like share with others because I think like making is so healing. Like there's been times in my life of great devastation. It's this kind of mercurial thing that we have to figure out as people whose jobs are in making, like how to balance those two, right? It's really hard to have a degree uh, in a thing that you absolutely love. Because I remember the first day of school when our course leader told us that, you know, this is the last day where embroidery is going to be a hobby. So from now on, this is your profession, it's your job. Um, but in a very... It sounds very dull when I say it, but it was in a such so profound. And I remember being so liberated, being like, oh my God, this is what I've wanted all along, but didn't feel can be done or like respected and, you know, all the complex notions within craft and work. But for those three years while I was studying, embroidery was my job and I absolutely loved it. I could never complain about how much I had to do, how much I wanted to do, but I treated it as job. And then having COVID come, which was my literally mid second year, um, and returning back to that kind of um, high school approach of like, I have time, let's stitch. And I started making things that didn't where I allow I allowed myself that they don't have to have a purpose they don't have to be representative of me of my um, aesthetic of my design it doesn't have to be anything other than calming my nerves because I was away from home and I had to understand you know family and all the complexity of the pandemic at the beginning and it was at that point for the first time in a really long time it was my only and main tool as for healing. I remember at first being like, oh my God, I'm making so many things, but I hate that they are without a purpose, that it's a material thing. And I've always, first of all, lived in very small apartments. So I could never have space to keep everything I've made. So that was my first thing. I was like, well, where I'm not gonna keep this till I'm 80. You know, I have to figure out what I'm gonna do with it. Am I gifting it to someone or, you know, what's the thing? Moving on from that, it was very 
I, I kind of diluted my embroidery experience, <laughs> I guess I could say it with now since COVID, I have allowed myself to have work embroidery and then I have home embroidery where it really divides itself without being divided. My husband still sees it as work, but I tell him it's not. <laughs> but it's kind of, I had to draw that line and being like, you know, this is what I'm doing when I have to represent myself. And then this is what I'm doing if it's a gift for Christmas for someone else. And, you know, I don't have to post it on Instagram and it doesn't have to tell about me as an artist or a maker, but it maybe will tell about me as a family member and what I would like to give as like a piece of me. And if anything, it has highlighted a really serious um, discussion that I have within me all the time and honestly in the last three days I've like written about this like numerous times that it's a really complex thing for an, me I'll start with me and try to kind of put my labels on where technically I'm an artist I create art and I would like to stay in that space and I'm still working hard to get finally at least to one exhibition and be respecting myself as an artist then moving on sometimes I want to be a designer or working to be one but then because I'm working in such a discipline I kind of don't allow myself to be identified as a designer being like well that doesn't qualify but then after that I have also the crafter maker side and being, well, at what point do I call myself that? Because also with crafting and making, as we all know, there's, you know, certain connotation that comes with it. So I'm trying to understand in which, play, which place and what time I can be what. Um, and if anything, I do have to say a big thank you for the making app. That that's the one place where I allow myself to post and not think about my feed and not think about if this is aesthetically pleasing or if this describes me if you know am I ruining my perception of me because I'm you know putting something that's not my usual visual aesthetic and everything and it has kind of taken some pressure off because I know that I can be a crafter maker and be proud about that within making but then also I can go to other platforms and be like hey I'm a designer and kind of exist in different places how I want to exist and not having like an umbrella term for me so in that sense I'm still kind of touching around and trying to understand what I want to be because I know maybe tomorrow I'm going to wake up and be like, you know what, I'm going to be a scientist and fully believe that as well. And then, you know, start thinking about where, where word it comes within that. But it's very um, a hard story to kind of navigate. But then if anything, at the end of the day, I'm extremely liberated that crafting is cool. And, and I hate that even now that I've been like a, a professional embroiderer for for a few years and being in the industry like full-time hardcore 
that I'm still living with the connotation that crafting is for grandmas. And I don't know, is it something, is it like a trauma or whatever? Like, I don't know. But it is cool, you know? And also at the end of the day, it's a fucking superpower that like, I'm an embroiderer, but, and I can, you know, stitch in like nine different techniques and I can read a knitting chart and I can read a crochet chart and I can, you know, sew a dress and everything and like all these things that we know that are so domesticated and like it's so normal because we're women and you're supposed to know that and blah blah blah. but it's a superpower I think it's a really important thing for all of us to remember the two things that really stand out to me are I guess spoken but unspoken argument or belief that craft and making and art are two different things or separate you know, I consider myself an artist. That's how my making started. And in any given day, I might go between quilting, painting, to knitting, to cooking, right? And for me, these things are all interconnected. There's lack of separation between them. Each of them is a form of self-expression, right? And there's this podcast episode that I keep referring to all these podcast episodes um, with this woman named Heidi Zuckerman. And I won't go in deep about her and she can be Googled, but she has this poignant thing that she said in this podcast. And it's that no one gets to say what art is and what art isn't. That's something that you as a person get to define. This is art. The only thing that other people get to say is whether they like it or not. They get to have an opinion. So they might not like that art. They might like it. They might think it's good, bad, you know, these terms. I've had a lot of conversations with artists, with makers. I, I really see little separation uh, between the two about what is what is craft defined, quote unquote, what is making, what is art. And for me, the kind of delineation that I've settled on is when the act of doing something transforms into a form of self-expression, like when you're not just mechanically doing something, when there's some imprint of you on that thing, which some could argue there's nothing you make that doesn't have that, right? That is when it quote unquote becomes art. And the other kind of evolution of that thinking is, if I say it's art, then it's art. That art is self-expression and it doesn't have come in the forms of like these classical things. And in the same note, like when I wake up in the morning, whatever I decide to do, I'm doing as an artist. And maker to me is synonymous. And whatever terms that we've ascribed or definitions we've ascribed to these are ones that we either were handed down to us from like systems, because if you think about, I mean, at least here in the States, like, and I definitely, especially in Eastern Europe, I've had quite a few friends from there. You look at hard times, like the communist revolution, and you look at like here in the States, like the depression and all these different times where making took on more of like a necessity that didn't discount it as art, right? Like it was necessity, but it was still a form of artistry that today we uphold as like beautiful and incredible, you know, these quilts or whatever it is. So I have 
a lot of opinions and thoughts about this. And I think it is in the eye of the beholder, really, both the artist and the observer. I fully agree with what you're saying. I know that what I'm doing is art. And I would, like, that's where my ego comes in, like, whatever I do is art. That's great. And, you know, whatever choice I make for my apartment, you know, it all is a form of, you know, my talent, uh, dare I say so. But my issue with identifying as an artist is because I haven't been exhibited. And that's where my struggle comes in a lot because I've never won anything so but so when I was studying we had these competitions that was you know between our classmates like all there were bigger smaller competitions where you know we're all working towards the same goal of being chosen and having a prize and and I was always really pissed because most of the times when those old competitions and well-known competitions were going on we all fully were aware that is judged by old white men who are not in a field and they are paying to be a part of society, that that's their mission, but not particularly that they understand anything of it. And I'm sorry if this is too controversial. No, but I mean, you're preaching to the choir here. So, (laughs) but the issue was that like, we all already knew that like, what we felt were the most talented will not be um, selected, which kind of was the situation and the case all the time. But in our second year, we had a competition that was only between our classmates. So it was, it was only between our 16 people. And so it was all about a first that like, they're going to pick maybe two winners for a shoe design that will be produced and you'll get a pair of shoes. And I remember that I loved working on it so much. And like, I I remember that was a project when I realized that I love designing with embroidery and kind of, I found that I can do some really commercial designs, but that I really loved. So I felt I didn't compromise my voice as an artist and a designer. And I was selected as one of four finalists, but being as in like, you're the winners, not as finalists. And also four out of 16 is a great chunk. So like it's not like, you know, too much competition for that. But I got caught off in the last minute, um, probably because the design was too hard to manufacture or whatever. Um, and that feeling fucking sucked. But you know, the thing is like, I, we've had numerous competitions just at the bachelor time. And then afterwards, I've always gone out of my way to apply for residencies and for exhibitions and like always trying to make it so I can at least say that I have exhibited once. And if I really want to, I can make an exhibition in my living room or like have people around like that's fine if I want to say it. But I need that validation of I have done it at least once. And I'm always kind of a firm believer that you can dream, but my only condition is that like, I'm fine if that dream is fulfilled, not for a long time. It might be a minute, it might be like a day, it doesn't have to be long lasting. And this dream of mine of being exhibited and being a part of like a bigger 
voice is not fulfilled yet. And every single time I expect of being rejected. And when it happens, I'm like, well, you know, that's what I expected and it's fine. But it hits me so hard that like, I don't know if I believe it, but I remember, I always tell myself that like, I'm just like not recognized. And I know I'm great at what I do. And I know I have a lot to say and it's not basic, but why not now? And I guess that's where my struggle of being as an artist, because I feel to be an artist who is worthy of something, of someone's time, of someone's money, of, you know, attention, is not in control of you. And I think that's kind of the hardest thing for me. So then I just decided, I, I just identify it as a designer and being like, fuck it. I don't care. I, I'm going to be above that. And I'm just going to be a designer, which also is a very, you know, different discussion of being in an art and design school where like, you know, where do you draw the line? What is art and what is designer? So I just kind of jumped the gun and be like, you know, I'm just going to go to the other side. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm sure that like, it's, I'm not the only one feeling that way. And it's a lot of people's experience. And, but it's just, I just need to exhibit it just once, just once. I don't care what, just once. I just need a nice photo so I can frame it and be done with it. <laughs> I love that that's the goal. And I I think there's probably a lot of people that might hear this and go, oh, you have so much time, you know? And I think that that's one of the most frustrating yeah. things to hear because, you know, we want we want this and we want it now you know there's not much that i could or should say here but one thing i will say is you know i am a firm believer in the power of manifestation and and i wonder if you were able to make that mindset shift and own that you are an artist it's not just something you're projecting that you are that you believe that you call, you refer, and you live as though you are because you are, that that will attract what you want. This goes for any label, right? Like whether it's a label or what that term represents, I think it could be applied to many things in people's life of like aspirations or goals or things that they want. It's that imposter syndrome again, I think that kind of comes in that's like, oh, you haven't done this. I mean, I, I feel this way in making. I mean, I've been in the tech industry for 15 years, but I've never been a CEO. I've never been a founder of a corporation. And so, you know, this space is dominated like predominantly by men and white men and their systems constantly that just even if we were doing things traditionally, there's systems that I'm coming up against. But because we are doing things so differently, it poses much more challenge and the challenges are saying this is who I am this is what I represent this is what I stand for this is what I'm putting out in the world yes it is good yes this is my way this is what I'm doing and it is beautiful and it is quote-unquote art and so I guess that's me you know here you go I'm saying it 
you know? And I mean, I think we say it in lots of different ways at making, but saying it out loud even to you right here is like hard because I'm afraid what people think. I'm afraid what I think. I'm afraid to be called a fraud or, you know, not good enough or whatever it is. And whatever, whether that's a human condition or our personal makeup, like let's fucking own this shit. I mean, for real, you know, who else is going to if we don't? If anything, it's already like important to even have this discussion of what do you want to identify with and what floats your boat and what doesn't. And, and you know, there's only select people you can like have this conversation with people who are in the same shoes as you are. And I don't particularly have a lot of those people around me and it's, you know, and with each person, it's a different story why they, you know, choose one over the other and kind of go for it. But if anything, kind of um, putting all these pieces together of me having the willpower of anything and wanting to do everything and, you know wanting to achieve stuff just because I've like been rejected from stuff it just kind of pushes me to like make my own platform for myself I almost like went to um uh almost went to study um uh, to be a curator just being like if I'm not getting into exhibitions I'm gonna make exhibitions for myself (laughs) I mean why do you think making app exists because there's no space for so many people that are on the making app, like that doesn't exist. It's not freely given. And so it's create a space so we can have it, you know? If you want to make it and to have a platform for yourself and if you're willing to give it to yourself, that's great. Like that's amazing. And I remember like in high school as well, my uh, I had to give a presentation for my English uh, teacher of like, I guess we had to pick a topic of like something that we love. Um, and I think I was talking about Christian Dior and embroidery as a profession and whatever, living in my little utopia at that time. And she was telling me like, yeah, and I just loved it on Facebook that you just like create a page and you just start sharing and you just don't care if people like or, you know, whatever. And I responded to her being like, if I like it, there's going to be someone else who likes it out there as well. Like fully believing that. That's kind of a really helpful mindset because, you know, if I seek validation out there in the big world like for exhibitions and being part of a successful artist narrative then in kind of my daily life as long as I get to do whatever I want and I can live my truth and create my own life and there's some people along for the ride fucking amazing you know I know there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that might not be able to relate, that might be able to relate to certain parts of it. And I think it's important to recognize that like, these are our stories as individuals and each story has different nuances and facets of it. And the one thing that I I think is really important to take note of here is, I mean, I feel incredibly privileged to be able to make that making is, you know, the brand and act are my career. It's my life. I mean, it wasn't always like that. And it took a long time to get to this place, not without a lot of sacrifice and uh, struggle. And even now, you know, there's a lot of sacrifice and struggle. 
to fight for this this life, uh, especially in the pandemic that just threw everyone around. But it is my existence right now, and I'm really thankful for that. It, it re- resonates a lot with me as well, where just at the end of the day, every single day when I get to do what I want to do, I am a happy person. And that's what matters the most. And I find a lot of calmness in that. And if anything, that's something I wish for everyone to find and to have overall. And it's, and I know there's a lot of us out there who would just would love to live, you know, our dream and to do what we love. <laughs> and it's just, I don't even know how to put it in words, but it's uh, magical. Mm-hmm. This really is speaking to the heart of why making exists. There was a point where I, and I've shared this before, but I was like, okay, making as a business can scale and and make money and create a few jobs. But if we're going for impact here, if we're going for how to change the world, you know, as cliche, but also audacious as that is, how can we create impact at scale? And the thing that I knew I could do is be a part of building something that creates opportunity for people. Not only creates opportunity, so a platform is what we're talking about, which is making, but an opportunity to be seen, an opportunity to learn, an opportunity to market skills, products, whatever it is, to take someone from ground zero, you know, just learning something and being inspired to eventually being able to monetize their skill. The opportunity to also hear stories and feel empowered that by listening to everyone on the podcast say, oh my God, like I can do that. Like I could do something like that. Sometimes it takes seeing that and hearing that to take that leap. It is scary. There, There's oftentimes... I mean, we were talking about being Aries, so I don't know if it's all always scary for us, like in the, be- <laughs> the beginning. Um, at some point, we realize like how far up we are looking down. But I think a lot of people need to hear that they can do it too. And I used to write, if I was at any events or anything, if I ever, uh, this is going to sound silly, but like if I ever was signing anything or writing a note to anyone or an email the thing I would always say is keep dreaming or follow your dreams. And I remember a few people would like make fun of me for it. I was like, no, but really that is the key. The key is to dream and to hear stories and then now find ways for opportunity. You are who we made the app for, you know, along with everyone else. I would love to hear more about kind of your journey from school to, you know, where you are today? At times, even now, I look at my last year, COVID, being back home. I look at that being 
as um, my peak. I had a separate room where that was my studio and I could sit there from early morning till late at night and just do my work and how much or how little as I needed and I knew stuff was uh, getting done. And I got feedback from my tutors all the time. Um, and it was so great, but then the reality came where I graduated and I wanted to have embroidery to be my full-time occupation, but I wasn't sure how I could figure that out. So I had to have a job. Um, and I went, I know this is going to be really out of the blue, but I was working in a medical university in an infectology department as a um, study process organizer, which now makes a lot of sense because I was organizing studying process, which is essentially what I do now with classes, which is great. But I was working in a medical field. What I was doing there, I have no clue. Um, and the problem was I took that job because that was close to home and, you know, it wasn't a bad job for being a graduate and not having education in that particular field. And and I was trying to talk myself into it being a great opportunity and it's going to be great. But if anything, it was so miserable because I've gone from intense environment of questioning my direction in life and embroidery itself and my voice within that to a nine to five or yeah. And literally my days consisted of maybe five emails at best and having to pretend that I'm overworked and I wasn't allowed to work remotely where I could do more of my own stuff. And it was like, I had so much free time at work where it was like fully driving me into depression. Literally three to four months into that job, I discovered you guys on um, TikTok and that was already um, a step out of it. But what I'm trying to say is like the contrast was so harsh that I felt like I don't know what I'm doing. And my biggest fear while I was studying was that I'm gonna study this. Also, to be fully honest, I've taken out like plenty of loans and not that I will regret it, but I'm not gonna work in the field or I'm just not gonna do it out of whatever circumstance of like not having time or resources or whatever. And I was living my worst fear. And to compensate for that, I was taking on more embroidery work for all the evenings and all the weekends. And that was a disaster because I was burning out again. Um, and that was so unnecessary, but that was my coping mechanism and I was overworked all the time. And also that was the first time when I didn't get a joy, any spark of joy from working, no matter how much embroidery or whatever, but there was no joy within that. This spring, I had I was able to make a decision to quit my job, um, and fully go freelance with teaching and with um, stitching, and it was just kind of that magic that we talked about previously that somehow things align. And at the end of the day, as a freelance artist, 
you have to be available for stuff. And if I'm busy at a nine to five, that doesn't fulfill any of my needs, even, you know, if not financial ones, then I am limiting myself to being available for great opportunities. Somehow it all aligned where somehow I'm managing it all. Um, and I know this is going to resonate with a lot of people, but, um, I am very much a control freak and my main kind of place where I know things are bad is when I start worrying about money, like seriously, like start panicking and trying to figure out ways of how to deal with it and everything. And now since I've been freelance, I haven't worried about that at all. Like I know I'm doing stuff and I'm not doing it for free. It kind of gives me the opportunity to again be a control of my life and my workload and stuff I do and get done and I guess that's the main thing I need for my well-being the problem is I want to do all the things so I still take on way too many things at the same time which is very me but this is the first time I'm running into that where even that is too much and I have to kind of I don't want to say scale back but if anything just kind of organize them and being like what things I'm doing for myself what things I'm doing for my career what things I'm doing for exposure and what things I'm doing what I think that need to get done but I can definitely say that I rather have this mess <laughs> than ever going back to a nine to five where I literally cannot name you one thing that I was gaining from that I think that was one of the most powerful moments for me at making actually was a conversation must have been the spring when you we had hopped on before your class and you were like like I quit my job being able to teach classes allowed me to you know add to my income so that I can do that and I just that was like okay it's happening like this is this is why we did this and being able to see that it was working in someone's life was really powerful for me I it, trust me it's been really powerful for me as well so it's the feeling is mutual see that's also the same thing about giving me a challenge like I love that um I uh, I kind of previously before making I had like two workshops beforehand that were um remote so I kind of have dabbled at that point in teaching embroidery um online but somehow it all just fell into place where there wasn't a reason for me to not do it. Even though that like, if at some point, let's say my office job was enough income for what was needed, still was like, hey, every Saturday or Sunday evening, I still, I'm just sitting at home. And because of the time difference, um, I can teach a class and in US most likely is going to be a morning or midday. So, I mean, why not? And it just kind of like went in to be something that I do every other week. And now I'm kind of going for at it harder and having it every week. The thing is to be like very upfront that I can with making, I can charge what I think I'm worth. Back home is a very different story. For example, so I started out with making and I believe it was 18th of December and my first class was mending workshop. And I was like, you know, what the hell, I'll try it, whatever. 
and it was great. I think I had like 10 people coming and I was like, oh my God, that's insane. And then literally now I have uh, a class, the same class, but in Latvian. And it's, uh, I'm, I put it on my Facebook and sponsoring through Facebook and everything. Literally no one has signed up. And on the ad, it says I've had like 200 clicks to literally that takes you straight to just purchasing a place in, you know, the class um, for 25 euros, uh, which I mean, at this point would be $25. Um, no one has bought it. And I guess the expectations of um, the price for stuff like that is extremely different here. Also, economy overall is very different here. But making gives me the opportunity, or I guess it gives me the little world where I can live and charge what I'm worth. Um, and also just like, if anything, I can just offer more because I'm not, you know, held back by, well, this previous class wasn't bought at all. So, you know, I rather than not give any classes at all, like I'm making them like, well, great. I had, you know, this many people coming to this class and I can offer them this. And it's a great space where I guess I don't have to think about an audience because, I live mainly on Instagram and recently more on Facebook and it's been a hard time because I mainly kind of share more about my life and kind of my professional life and creative practice but on making I don't have to worry about like how to reach people that would be interested in my stuff and I guess that's like the biggest magic uh, and a selling point for me because I know there's people out there who want to learn how to do cool mending or cool embroidery that's not flowers. I, I know there's people like me who would just love to stitch. And I, I've had those people like, and, and, and when I see that they're returning to classes, that makes me so happy and just, I just feel like, yeah, I found my people, <laughs> you know, like very much that feeling. And if anything, and I'm, I'm literally getting chills when I'm saying this, here, it's very much, well, because also we've had so many big political things switch uh, in a short amount of time here in Latvia. The still kind of narrative about working is that you have to work hard for everything and nothing, you know, drops on you from uh, clear skies. But if anything, making is proving to me that that's not always the case. And the return of what you put in sometimes can be more than you think. And that is very liberating for me as a young adult because it sets a very healthy work-life idea of a balance. <laughs> it's very important that it's an option and it can be done and that there are people who believe in that and curate that and at the end of the day it's made me very happy the biggest of thanks to everyone involved in this week's episode i hope you'll join me each week as we talk and learn for more fascinating makers for podcast notes and transcriptions visit our blog at makingzine.com have a wonderful week